Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Revoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Welcome to the Nerd Party. Let the filibustering begin. Welcome to Nerd Party. Hello and welcome to Filibuster here on the Nerd Party, the podcast that will need a bigger boat as we review the Meg this week. I'm your co-host Dallas King and it was touch and go whether I'd make it this week because I just drove a car off a freeway on top of a train while it was on fire. Not the car, I was on fire. But of course in order to catch a giant shark you need a lot of chum and so the staith to my ham, here's Lee Hutchison, how are you? Yeah, I'm really good, thanks. I always love your introductions. They truly are the best, and mine always look so poor in comparison. It's like, hi, welcome to the nerd party, blah, 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 blah. And today's, you know, yous are just on fire. Yeah, This is why you, you've you been brought on. <laughs> I can start uh, scripting your introductions. From, I can do the introductions every week if you want. <laughs> Sounds good. Cool. So, um, as of course uh, we've mentioned, the big uh, looming review we've got is uh, The Meg, and later on we're also going to discuss our top five films either set on or underneath the deep blue sea. But uh, before we dive into things, uh, shall we do a quick catch-up of what we've been watching this week, other than Jason Statham fighting giant sharks? Absolutely, yeah. Um, For me personally, I have only watched one movie, and that is the aforementioned Meg. Uh, The festival here in Edinburgh is in full swing, so I've been seeing some shows, doing some interviews. So I haven't had a chance to see a single movie apart from Meg. I will be seeing Christopher Robin on Thursday, but it's just been one of those kind of few weeks where it's just like comedy shows and theatre plays and stand-up and you know interviews and recording and editing interviews. So it's been a been a crazy one there, and, and it just feels like at the moment there's not much. At the cinema, it's just like one big release will come out every two weeks. And it's like, I've just looked at the schedule for Friday in the multiplex. And it's like, no, not really much else has been added. It's more of the same. And, you know, even things like Jurassic World are still kind of holding strong here. It's kind of, it's kind of a bit frustrating. Yeah, no, I think, yeah, I think the summer sort of season is finally sort of winding down. Um, Certainly up here, yeah, I think we're going to get like Christopher Robin and uh, The Equalizer 2, which for some bizarre reason is not called The Sequelizer. I mean, come on. Uh, But I think, yeah, we're even at the independent cinemas, we're now just catching up with a few things because I watched First Reformed finally this week. It finally came up to Aberdeen about six weeks after it was initially out in some other cinemas and that was an interesting watch, I have to say. You saw it probably mid-July, was it? Yeah, it's crazy. I think it's been that long. Yeah, I saw it. And um, yeah, I'm curious to hear what, what you thought of it first. Um, I really liked it. Um, there was a moment where it nearly lost me. I'll have to say we can discuss. Uh, you might know what moment that might be, but we can discuss it a bit later. But um, I thought it was. I thought Ethan Hawke was fantastic and... I read an interview, uh, no, I think it was in IMDb trivia, that Paul Schrader didn't realise uh, that there were similarities to 
taxi driver until he started to watch the footage back and edit it together and it's like you didn't realize that you know lots of voiceover about a slightly unstable man writing in a diary and trying to write wrongs was any bit like taxi driver hmm okay <laughs> yeah no um i thought it was a uh, fantastic and yeah i was really really impressed with it um i love the style i love the uh the cinematography as well it was all shot in sort of academy ratio and i thought it was just um really sort of uh powerful and was wasn't really it didn't really go where i expected it to go um what about yourself yeah i was a huge fan of it um i just find like i love ethan hawk uh ethan ethan hawk i nearly said ethan hunt there um because <laughs> someone the other day went to me how can people tell the two apart you know when, I, when I, i've got a before sunset quad in my room and someone went Ethan Hawke, that reminds me of that guy from Mission Impossible, Ethan Hunt. So it's been kind of playing around in my head, but I just thought it was one of the, the best movies of the year. I mean, it you know, I, I am an atheist, for example, but I, I think the questions it poses about religion and environment and that uneasy alliance between the two, and especially in regards to politics and how what seems to be the obvious choice for religion and people that view and you know this is god's creation how do we look after it and that those bedfellows don't seem to be so natural i just thought it was fantastic and there's just so many moments especially in that kind of last 30 minutes that i wouldn't even dare to kind of spoil where it just it's so like oh my god what is actually going to happen here where is this going to go and you know there's just so many scenes where it, it genuinely shocks and surprises you and it was yeah i i couldn't believe it it's um i think it's going to be a film that will you know i don't even know how people were going to kind of view this in a few years time but i hope people continue to to see this film and find it because it's one of ethan Hawke's best performances it's it's just incredible the, the parallels between that and taxi driver are you know astonishing and um, I would recommend to anyone if they get the chance to listen to the A24 podcast um, A24 do, do conversation podcasts where they shove two of their directors together to just have a conversation about maybe the movies they made, you know, other people's films and him and um, Sophia Coppola put together a conversation uh, Paul Schrader that is all about this movie and he's he's so open about his you know his religious experiences that kind of manifested themselves in this film his influences his thoughts on the ending for example it's one of the best kind of podcast hours of just two talented filmmakers just having a conversation so i recommend it for yourself and anyone else that's seen first reform to to listen to that kind of companion piece oh i i definitely need to to listen to this one because yeah no i've got a lot of questions um uh, about the ending and stuff like that. I mean, uh, I'm not really religious either, and so therefore I might have missed some uh, sort of references to particular uh, parts of the Bible and whatever with the stories and the themes and things like that. But I thought it was a fascinating story. Of, so, and, and you're right, Ethan Hawke was fantastic. But for me, I think he's one of the the, the truly great underrated actors. Um, he's just fantastic and everything even stuff like sinister which you know could have been your very typical sort of genre horror sort of fair was elevated by his performance i thought he was fantastic in that he sort of brings a grounded realism to any role that he plays and i think um i was really sort of disappointed when Benedict Cumberbatch was cast as doctor strange because it was directed by scott derrickson and there was a moment when I was really hoping that Ethan Hawke might have played Doctor Strange because I think he would have brought something really interesting to the role and it would have been interesting to see how he would have interacted in the MCU. 
Yeah, I remember at the time hearing that he was going to be linked with this movie and it was like, oh my god, Ethan Hawke in a movie like this would just be absolutely incredible. But part of me at the same time was really happy that he avoided it because for someone like myself, he's he is like this indie movie darling. You know, he's for, for the Before Trilogy, he has like free passes for life. And I love that he continues to pick movies like that. You know, Boyhood, First Reformed you know so many other movies when he pops up he, it looks like a sign of class i know there's a movie coming up which looks like some sort of bizarre kind of romantic comedy i've only seen the poster I, uh, on my uh, yes, itunes thing i don't know what the Ju- hell that Juliet is naked is yeah, that the one? I, yeah yeah it's based on a nick hornby um book he plays a sort of washed up rock star who ends up uh, in a sort of email sort of you know relationship with someone who's husband is the biggest fan of this particular rock star or whatever so it's like a love triangle sort of thing but um it could be you know it could be one of the sort of breakout sort of rom-coms of the year or it could be something else who who knows but i think um i think he'll bring whatever he does he does manage to bring something really quite interesting and uh unique to it but i guess um if i wanted to actually bring up any actually even like the purge i mean he managed to bring a sort of great sort of role mm-hmm. to that but I do need to big up um, a film which not many people will have seen. Um, it's Predestination. Have you seen that one? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've seen Predestination. It's such yeah, an underrated movie. I don't. Did it even get released in the cinema? I I don't think it did. It maybe had like a couple of shows in London, but it was one that basically went straight to DVD. And it's one that people really need to to sort of uh, find out and sort of experience for themselves. It's. The basically the less said going into it, it's got sort of like a time travel element to it. But I mean, it just sort of blew me away when I saw it, and it's like, and it really needs. And Ethan Hawke plays one of the main roles in it, and it's just a fantastic film. And please do see and check out uh, Predestination and First Reformed if you can as well. Have you got any yeah, other underrated Ethan Hawke that. films that you? Hey, oh, I'm on the spot now. I can't think of anything at the moment, but yes, pre- I'll go with Predestination. And if, for the love of God, if you've not seen um, the Before Trilogy, definitely check that out. Oh, absolutely. I mean, there are three. That's probably one of the all-time great near-perfect trilogies for me. Although I remember when I saw I saw Before Sunset first and loved it. I did it. the same, yeah. And then went back and watched the first one and found myself not really liking Julie Delpy's character. No, um, but I've I've managed to, but uh, I love the third one as well. But for me, the, this is the second one. It's the the point when she reaches across in the taxi and to go to like touch his hair or something, and then yeah. pulls back. I mean, that moment is just like that moment kills me every time I see it. Yeah, there is one film I would recommend, uh, an Ethan Hawke one that's somewhat underrated. Um, Maggie's Plan, I think, had a short and uh, yes. stint here at the festival a few years ago. Um, a Greta Gerwig. Um, Ethan Hawke, they play sort of lovers that have a child, and he's a kind of he comes out of a relationship to be with Greta Gerwig's character to then come back out of it again, and it's just sort of an interesting wee examination of this odd couple, essentially this older professor and the, this younger woman. It's is really good. It was kind of not long after something like Francis Ha, which I am on the record as absolutely loving. So I was desperate for some new Greta Gerwig movie, and uh, while it's definitely not uh, any of their best movies, it's something real interesting to see. Ethan Hawke as a bit of a bit of an asshole really in this kind of character a bit of a love cheat but still with that that kind of charm that we all know he has 
No, absolutely. I can highly recommend Maggie's plan as well. I thought it was fantastic. But uh, I guess before this turns into uh, the Ethan Hawke love hour, we should uh, move on to the film that we were uh, going to be discussing and potential it could be another love-in for uh, Britain's favourite bald action star, uh, Jason Statham. Uh, It's time to talk about The Meg. Now, The Meg is a film which can simply be summed up as uh, the Stath versus a giant shark. I mean, I think pretty sure that's how it was sold uh, without a script, probably. And uh, it's been co-financed between China and the US. If you didn't know that fact, I think you could probably be able to guess it from the fact uh, that the film is set uh, off the coast of Shanghai and has a multiracial cast. And yeah, I mean, I don't think we really need to say much more than that, that there's an underwater base and uh, they happen to let loose uh, a giant shark and Jason Statham has to stop it. Um, so what did you think of The Meg? Yeah, I was quite in looking forward to this one. I think like the trailers kind of sold me. It was a movie that kind of came out of nowhere for me. I wasn't familiar with the book. I didn't even know it was in kind of pre-production. And like for me, it's like a down-the-middle three out of five movie. And like I never once thought like, oh, this is terrible. Or I never thought, oh, my God, this is really good. Like, you know, my girlfriend, you know, was really into it in that respect that, you know, she was she was on her edge, she was nervous, you know, as soon as the, the, the little dog got into the ocean, I thought she was going to, like, have a heart attack, and, you know, like, I know for a fact they never kill a female dog in movies, it's never going to happen, but, like, she got really into it, and I just, and I enjoyed it for what it was, you know, J- Jason Statham, you know, being Jason Statham is, you know, I, I enjoy him in every movie, and I it put me in the mood to, to dust off the crank DVDs, he's just an enjoyable actor and it was one of these movies that kind of in the summer we've got so many kind of bloated blockbusters you know even for movies that i you know really like say something like mission impossible is you know two and a half hours for something like this it's you know the right kind of running time it doesn't end with some sort of like oh my god there's another shark or there's another twist there it was just like a self-contained you know, summer, you know, romp really. And I, you know, I'll probably forget about it in a week, but for what it was on a Monday night after work, I enjoyed it. You know, the the action scenes I thought were quite enjoyable. I thought some of the over the top moments, you know, they it, it threaded that quite well. Yeah, I, I just found it completely inoffensive and just mildly enjoyable. And it reminded me of maybe a film I would have seen with my family when I was younger, where it was something that might just appeal to everyone. It isn't so geeky, my dad won't want to go. It's not so horror that my mom won't want to see it. You know, I could imagine me and my brother have been like, oh, it's a big shark and, you know, it's an action hero, something like that. And I kind of like the use of some of the technology, for example, where you see like... Um, jetson style ships kind of navigating through the oceans i i kind of like that and um rain wilson was you know he was quite good there's a scene where he's like i'm really sorry guys you know we've had some losses and then he's like the next scene he's kind of like got twisting the mustache really i think it's just a a nice blend of of different movies and obviously it does have a an asian kind of financing which means it's got a bit of a diverse cast which is always a good thing as well so yeah I, i enjoyed it it made me made me happy and you know I enjoyed it for what it was, but I have a f- sneaky feeling that you weren't a fan. I was not a fan of the Meg. Uh, sadly, I really wanted to enjoy it. I mean, I'd enjoyed the trailers, uh, like that it used like Beyond the Sea and sort of sold up the uh, the carnage that was going to be involved with this giant shark, uh, you know, taking out thousands and thousands of uh, people off uh, the coast of a beach, and only one man can stop this giant shark but unfortunately that's not the movie which I watched (laughs) 
I, I don't know if I just, you know, built this thing up in my head, but, you know, you, it'd been sold on, you know, Stay First Shark. And I mean, it does. I mean, I will give it that, that it does. In the final act, it does feature a scene where Jason Statham fights a giant shark single-handedly. So, you know, kudos to that. You know, it doesn't pull uh, the grey where the trailers promise you basically Liam Neeson fighting wolves uh, in hand-to-hand combat, uh, only for the not to happen. Uh, so, you know, plus points for that. Uh, but though it was, it was almost there was an issue with. I felt that it didn't know what it wanted to be. Mm-hmm. It was very much a film of two halves, and that the first half was this sort of underwater rescue thing where Statham's character is a deep sea diver. He, he organizes, organizes deep sea rescues, uh, and he's somehow manages to get. I mean, this was a point. This is the kind of movie where you're watching it on a Friday night, and it turns out that the woman who is trapped at the bottom of the ocean turns out to be his ex-wife, and that elicits a huge guffaw from the audience. Uh, not as much as, actually, I was the only one who laughed out loud at this, but it was the line where they managed to basically take down the shark initially, and Rain Wilson says something about, you know, uh, you know, it's not all bad, you know, it's uh, things turned out all right, and like someone goes, not for Toshi, and not for science, and I just <laughs> cracked up at that. I mean, it's like that line of dialogue was just like, oh my god. Um, the problem was it's. It turned into, you know, in the second half of the movie, it becomes, you know, what it was probably supposed to be a shark movie. But it seemed to be like a movie where this movie is a 12A and it's a PG-13 in America. And it feels like initially it was going to be an R-rated, you know, straight for the wall balls out horror, sort of full of gore. Similar to what Piranha did a few years ago. Piranha 3D, I thought, was actually really enjoyable and basically leaned into the, the, the sort of comic horror aspects of the storyline. Potentially, perhaps, the, the problem with this film for me was the shark is so big that there's no chance to like bite anyone in half or anything, and it just sort of swallows them whole. And then that way there's not really any blood or guts, and that was what kind of disappointed me, was that the lack of visible carnage on screen. Yeah, I wish it kind of fully embraced sort of something like Crank, where you come out of that and you think, like, when you watch the trailer for that, you think, oh, that's going to be like an action kind of movie. I always remember that, like, the trailer for Crank was, like, really played nonstop, kind of like it has been with The Meg. And, like, with Crank, you think, that's, like, a very kind of serious movie, an action movie. Yeah, like, I'll, I'll go see that. It's, it looks pretty generic. And I remember going to see that at, like, 11 o'clock at night on Friday of release and coming out of that going, that was not what I expected that was just nuts and to this day like yesterday i was like to my girlfriend oh it's got this scene and oh my god you won't believe this happens whereas like the meg when you watch that trailer it is the same it's trying to thread two things like at the beginning it's like ooh, you know a big shark movie it's a bit tense you know you see the young kid and then it kind of cuts to that jason statham it's a megalodorus or whatever that whatever it was called it's a megalodon it's kind of gonna be playing to a laugh and yeah and like in the first kind of 40 minutes of this film it's like oh it's building up the tension you know rain wilson is you know he's a bit wacky he is he's a humorous character but everything else around him is pretty kind of straight-faced 
and then you kind of have Jason Statham and like you've got this rescue mission which again is really tense some jokes I did like how it was his ex-wife but like it wasn't about them reconnecting she is literally in it as just the excuse to get him there I kind of like that that didn't go down that trope but I would like if it perhaps embraced sort of the maybe like the Jetsons underwater style vibe they had with like the ships and stuff I, like I, I think f- it it, I thought they, it was they too were... nervous to go full away, but I think it could have been great. Yeah, though those sort of glider ship things—they reminded me of the Phantom Menace when, like, Qui Gon and Obi Wan are going yeah. down to uh, with Jar Jar Binks and stuff. Those that's what they reminded me of, uh, and so th- immediately that's not a good thing. <laughs> <laughs> Perhaps not and stuff, and uh, you know, it's it's yeah, I, I definitely can see the resemblance there. Apart from it didn't have the little thin little shakers at the back, but yeah, I, I think like. I, I just like that it was self-contained. I, I did expect it to be almost like, oh, here's the sequel at the end. And I think like it has one of the finest, best shots to close a movie of the past year. I thought it was so cool. So, um, yeah, I, it's it's not remarkable in any respect. It's But it's almost nice to have a sort of a throwback movie in this respect. And a, a kind of few years where the throwbacks has been sequels to franchises that should have stayed dead or you know have been diminishing returns for this to be sort of like a, a standalone movie in the summer was kind of nice a nice little change and you know when you you look down the list of things at the cinema just now it, it stands out in that respect so it's nice to have a, a chat about a one-off original film and you know they'll, they'll maybe do a sequel again in the future but yeah I'm, I'm i was happy enough with it it was the it wasn't a bad way to spend a monday night yeah, no, I mean, the if it wasn't for uh, the Staith, uh then I think um, I would have had very little interest in this at all. I think um, his charisma and sort of, he knew what kind of movie he was in and sort of played up to that. And therefore, all the scenes that he was in worked really well. It was just, it was almost set up, there was too many similarities, I think, for me to Deep Blue Sea, which sort of did this film much better and that was nearly probably 20 years ago um you know you've got this large supporting cast of people who are essentially there to be eaten and you know not want to spoil anything but a surprisingly few number a surprisingly small number actually you know actually didn't make it to the final reel and that was again slightly disappointing but i think it was just a bit you know toothless for me i think just yeah. the word and i would have liked to have seen you know proper 18 rated or 15 rated you know that played into the the horror aspect and you know the gore aspect and you know there was some people seemed to be playing it very very straight and some people seemed to know what they were what kind of movie it was like rain wilson and, and jason statham but some of the other people and i think it was i think there is a cut out there somewhere where it's a proper r-rated horror and this has been cut down to become a sort of more family-friendly, let's sell it to as wide an audience as possible. And I mean, it seems to be working. I mean, it's done very, very well over the weekend. And I think definitely well enough that there will turn out to be another shark or another underwater sea creature that they will need to take down uh, in the future. Because I, I don't think we've seen the last of this franchise. I hope not, and I, you know, I, I would like if it was just a self-contained one, and I, I suppose the kind of closing shot of the film does promise a bit of a finality in a way, but um, yeah, I, I wouldn't be surprised to maybe do another one again, like, there was a sort of twist within the movie that could almost open up for another sequel, but they play that card quite early here, and you know, Jason Statham, for the most part, 
you know, he does, you know, he doesn't sort of, you know, he does do his sequel kind of movies and stuff, but, you know, I just can't picture a, a second Meg movie, and I think they've, they've played the kind of cards here, but, you know, maybe it'll be a sort of different creature in the future or something a bit different, you know, it, it could it could almost be in a sort of cinematic universe with something like the Godzilla movies, you know, for example, which I, I think are Warner Brothers as well, are they? Or that's Universal, I can't remember. Uh... You no, know, they're they're I think Warner Brothers and Legendary. I think yeah. So mm. yeah, no, there's there's potential for the for the Megalodon to uh, to turn up. Um, so yeah, I guess we'll just have to see what happens in the uh, in the future. Uh, and I know this Stath is going to be busy with uh, Fast and Furious films and whatever for the next while. But he, if, if he's not too tired of franchise work, then there's always a there's always another trip back down under the water. Absolutely, and uh, Jason Statham should be in more films. It, you know, he he does pick and choose his projects, and I think he, you know, I I don't think he's really picked a bad movie as such yet. You know, he always he's you know even if a film is maybe not the greatest, he's always one of the best things in it, and I look forward to his you know return in the Fast and the Furious movie, especially him and The Rock paired up together. I mean, that is a, a pairing that me and you can only dream of matching. Uh, indeed, yeah, and and, and directed by uh, the director of John Wick uh, and Atomic Blonde as well. So, I think that will, I think that potentially could become the new franchise. And because I think the for me, the my interest in the Fast and Furious films was very, very minimal until The Rock turned up. And for me, the films have just got better and better. And I think I could see myself in a situation where I'm more interested in. Uh, uh, Shaw and Hobbs spin-offs than I am with the actual Fast and Furious franchise so I guess we'll see what happens with that but you know I mean the, the Stath is very dependable and he's he's one of those actors who whatever role he's in he seems to be just Jason Statham but he he knows he is a hark back to like yeah the late 80s early 90s that kind of action star who knows what they do and does it very very well I mean, I do like films where he kind of plays on that. So, Spy is one of my favorite performances of his uh, in recent years. And but there was a there was a website that had done a quiz or something. It was like name the Jason Statham film, and it was basically fifteen shots of him bald with stubble wearing a suit and pointing a gun, and he had to guess which film it was. So, yeah, I mean, there's jokes to be had, but I think he's one of the first people who will take the piss out of himself and, and knows exactly what he's all about and, and does it very well. Yeah, I think so. And, yeah, colour me colour me hopeful for the future of uh, Jason Statham. Absolutely. So today's top five pick is going to be based, uh, going off the Meg, we decided to talk about our top five films either set on or under the deep blue sea because actually i realized that if i said uh, on top or under the ocean then we could have technically picked oceans 11 because i was uh, googling ocean films earlier and that actually came <laughs> up as one of the options i was like it did mm, yeah, yeah that's not exactly what i was going for so uh, i'm presuming that you don't have a, either any of the oceans films from no no no, no. if fine. i was struggling i might have put something in there thinking i was being a bit of a smart ass uh, but you you did ask for a special dispensation uh, because we normally talk about our top five films, but because uh, here on the Nerd Party we talk about all sorts of uh, popular culture from films to TV uh, and all sorts, you wanted to include a TV show. So we're opening this up to top five films and TV shows. So do you want to kick us off with your number five and is it in ascending order? 
Uh, yeah, I've put them into ascending order because I'm being a, a good egg. So I have um, three movies and two television shows. Mm-hmm. So my first choice is, and perhaps the maybe the not obvious choice, but I picked a Stargate SG-1 episode called Descent. And it is the sixth season episode and the you know it comes kind of hot off the heels of the two-parter season opener and the reason i picked this one was that you know for people that haven't seen the episode you know or you know don't see the stargate uh, reruns endlessly on sky 2 um the episode is sort of hot on the heels of Jonas Quinn now officially joining the SG-1 team and the the team head up into orbit to discover an alien attack vessel orbiting Earth and they discover that it belongs to their enemy Anubis but the ship is abandoned and the consciousness of Thor, the alien, is causing the ship to malfunction. So the ship begins a descent towards the Pacific Ocean and there's no way to stop it. And the crew find themselves stranded on the bottom of the ocean looking to escape an alien vessel and get back to the surface. So one of the reasons I picked this was I, I kind of tried to put myself thinking like, you know, you know, obviously one of the obvious Stargate underwater ones to pick is Atlantis, obviously. But with something like Descent, it was such a kind of exciting idea at the time, you know, where we were back in sort of 2002. And Stargate had just sort of made the transfer from Showtime to Sci-Fi, and not to say that the show wasn't great on on Showtime, it, it certainly was. You know, but the budget was within its means. But with the, when it moved to sort of the Sci-Fi Channel, it felt invigorated, it felt brand new, and this kind of came hot off the heels of sort of the the two-parter. And I remembered at the time I was big into internet spoilers. You know, you're you're reading about TV episodes that are months away from being aired in the TV shows here in the UK on Sky. I remember reading about this episode and just thinking of the idea of an alien spaceship crashing into the earth ocean and a crew trying to escape it just sounded really exciting and to see that perhaps on a tv budget gave it a sort of an exciting scope and scale that it never really had stargate a lot of it was you know kicking around the canadian woods and i, I just really like this episode and I, I find it enjoyable it makes use of the you know the underwater scenes you know the the usual someone's got a deep dive and kind of free the ship etc um but i think it's an enjoyable episode and it's it's it was enjoyable at the time and it was one I was so hyped up for just based on the concept when I read it months before seeing it on the TV show and yeah it was it was written obviously by Joseph Malozzi and Paul Mully and for anyone that's listened to kind of our episode it's it's you know Joseph Malozzi appeared on uh, Filibuster just a few earlier this month and he, he spoke about kind of making these action adventure episodes and that was his specialty and it certainly was the, uh, with this episode and I, I recommend it highly well, I'll need to check it out and I guess now's the time to admit that I've not actually ever seen any uh, Stargate uh, beyond the actual first film, so uh, it's something which I might need to uh, to binge watch at some point. But I believe there's how many series, different series of Stargate? There's uh, are there now? three series worth of it. Um, we yeah, we have three series of it. We have the film. We have two straight to DVD movies, and there's a random cartoon series which has nothing to do with the canon of the TV series. But I highly recommend it. You know, I watched Stargate Universe, the third one, which only lasted two seasons. I tend to watch that sometimes over breakfast. It's on at like seven till eight in the morning. So usually after I've had my shower and I'm sitting down to my breakfast and watching it, and it has Robert Carlyle as a lead in a sci-fi series, which is always always wonderful to see him in something like this. So yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, it's worth watching. It's an episode that Stargate is a very rich show in terms of tying into previous episodes and the the consciousness of Thor the alien, not Thor the uh, the, the god as such not of the, god the Marvel of movies. Yeah, it, it, it ties into something that kind of happens in the season 5 finale. So it's, it's a hard one to watch in perhaps isolation, but it's enjoyable nonetheless for fans. 
Excellent. My number five pick is uh, an absolute classic and one that sort of appears near on TV sort of every, every sort of holiday period, and that's the Poseidon Adventure. Uh, the, the, I must stress the original Poseidon Adventure, not the... <laughs> Not the uh, the one with Kurt Russell and around about 2010. Poseidon Adventure was released in 1972 and is one of those classic sort of disaster movies where you spend sort of the first half hour on the this cruise ship called the Poseidon and it sort of introduces you to characters like sort of Gene Hackman's Reverend Scott. You've got uh, the famous sort of Shelley Winters uh, you've got people like uh, Roddy McDowell and Ernest Borgnine and whatever. So you've got this whole different group of characters who are experiencing, you know, uh, it's New Year's Eve. They're having a party on this cruise ship. Uh, and the captain's actually played by Leslie Nielsen from uh, the Naked Gun and Police Squad. And basically the ship gets encounters a huge wave and gets tipped over. And basically the rest of the movie is the survivors have to make it from the the top of the ship which is now the bottom of the ship to the top of the ship which is actually the bottom of the ship and you basically go through trying to work their way up to the top so they can try to get rescued and it's you know as i said it's your standard sort of disaster movie so you know that not all of them are going to make it and some of them will perish in uh shocking or uh sort of uh terrible ways and it's just one of those ones which is it's one of those films which I remember as watching as a kid but then re-watching as an adult you get to see the sort of the way that films like this are constructed and the sort of storytelling techniques and it's just one of those sort of classic classic films and it's got just a great sort of lead performance from Gene Hackman and yeah no I just think it's just a classic film which uh, is uh, fun for the whole family I think yeah, it's a, it's a, and you sort of see it's one of the most kind of inspiring things. Like, obviously, I was just talking about that Stargate episode there. Like, the influence of the Poseidon adventure on that is so noticeable. And it seems like a lot of TV series kind of and, and movies have been inspired by that. Like, it's it's the best that's ever been at that kind of underwater kind of escape movie. And, you know, it, it seems like no other, you know, show or movie has ever been able to match it. They can only just echo and inspire it. Yeah, I mean, you've you've got the ones like uh, the original, like Earthquake and uh, Towering Inferno and stuff like that, and they all they're basically the same movie, but you know you've got one on a boat, one on a building, and so it's it's that kind of thing. But I think for me, Poseidon Adventure is the one that does it best, and it's it's my personal favorite out of out of, the, out of those disaster movies. Yeah, absolutely, and it makes me think if this was number five, where what could the next four be for you? Oh, well, well, we will find out sh- soon enough. Uh, but at number four, what uh, if, have you got for us? Yeah, I picked a, another sort of my uh, my last sort of TV episode here, is, and it's another one. It's it's probably one of my least favorite Star Trek series, but um, Star Trek Voyager did a really fantastic episode about sort of an a water planet essentially and I, I can't remember the absolute nonsense of the the science that they were able to justify that there was a planet strictly based with water but um basically to sort of summarize this this episode briefly is uh, tom paris is demoted to ensign and sentenced to 30 days in the break for disobeying orders and while serving time in the break tom writes a letter to his father about the events that led to his demotion when they visit this water planet and they discover that things are being polluted and tom decides to take things into his own hands and and put an end to this you know planet-wide water pollution really and um, it's it's one of these episodes where 
Star Trek in particular, especially in the kind of the 90s and, and most particular Voyager, was really incredibly episodic that you visit a planet, it was a sound stage, it was kind of, you were never really blown away by these planets. And sort of in that kind of late 90s stage, like CGI was becoming more you know, noticeable. You could you could make a water planet before it was just like sort of a you know a matte painting that you know your model shit would be flying by. And I just really think this episode is quite interesting because it shows consequences of the characters' actions here. And even though it's something like a demotion, you know, it Voyager was always you know you could have like there was an there was the two part where they found another starship crew and like they committed treason and then they were going to be integrated within to the crew and they were never seen from again like you rarely ever saw the consequence of people's actions and i think tom paris was always one of my favorite voyager characters you know like him the doctor because they were felt like relatable they felt human even if they weren't all human characters and i think with this episode seeing sort of like the underwater planet you know the the visuals of this you know the delta flyer the craft being essentially turned into a, a submarine and going deep underwater it was some fantastic visuals it was and it was really exciting and a unique episode of star trek voyager that, that's really stuck with me and you know it's his 20th anniversary and come december so and for me i i, I always rate it as one of my favorite episodes of the you know the franchise in particular voyager and i think it's it's it just looks really cool and i think the the message about the environment and how we treat the ocean is something that's universal and while we have all these movies perhaps about underwater water you know conservation the environment isn't always perhaps at the forefront where something like star trek where it is always looking to champion at its best environmental causes you know political causes all these sorts of things i think this episode does it well and is is vintage star trek absolutely and uh, it sounds like it was about 20 years uh, ahead of its time because uh, you know the ocean and sort of environment is definitely a huge thing this year and it's it's only now that when Blue Planet 2 came out that suddenly everyone suddenly realised oh yeah we actually need to stop chucking all this plastic in the ocean and suddenly it's getting debated in the Houses of Parliament and everyone wants to ban single use plastics and stuff like that so I guess we have uh, you know, uh, David Attenborough to thank for that uh, but maybe we have uh, that episode of uh, Star Trek Voyager to thank for maybe yeah. it was the inspiration for the whole Blue Planet 2 series <laughs> One can only, I think that would be giving Voyager more credit than it deserves <laughs> Okay, so number four on my list, and I have the very simple story of a father searching for his son uh, across the ocean. And, of course, it can only be Pixar's Finding Nemo. And Interesting choice. Yeah, well, you know, it's, it's CGI, you know, computer-generated water, but it still counts for me. I think it still counts. And I just love this particular Pixar movie. I love the characters. I love the fact that Albert Brooks... Uh, it's in a Pixar movie and, you know, you've got such wonderful characters such as Dory. You've got the Bruce the shark. And I think it's just a great sort of story of, yeah, just uh, a neurotic, slightly Woody Allen-esque father who's never been really outside of the uh, section of call that he's ever been in, but plucks up the courage to basically go across the ocean to to bring back his son, uh, the the only sort of family member that he's still got. And it's just a really sort of, very very funny moving warming pixar film full of some great fantastic vocal performances and and some fantastic animation as well and really sort of showed what pixar was capable of at that time and for me it's it's at my number four yeah i i have like i never saw kind of finding nemo until 
maybe like four years ago for some reason I just never kind of got around to it I always remember I had just started working at a Tesco at the time when the, the video came out probably sort of the tail end of the video kind of you know phase dying off I think it was like kind of 2004 or something like that I was working at Tesco and I just was constantly selling so many copies of Finding Nemo that that year I remembered my birthday card for my parents was like a Finding Nemo card because I kept moaning about constantly having to sell Finding Nemo DVDs to families so um, yeah I finally saw it and it was one of those ones that perhaps passed me by maybe I'm just a bit too boring and cynical but I enjoyed the movie fine enough and I liked the birds and the stuff that took place in the dentist place I enjoyed that a lot but I, I never got around to seeing the sequel it's just it, it's you know for when I think sort of the Pixar movies I feel like I've maybe got a disconnect with anything that's not like the Incredibles one like the Toy Story trilogy yeah, you know I feel like I'm I don't know I've just sort of not connected with it too well and that's I think it's just strictly all me yeah no, I mean the the sequel Finding Dory was is essentially just the first film but in this case they're trying to find Dory instead and yeah no it's not a patch on the original but yeah no, I, I still think the original is up there with the peak Pixar films that they were making and that they had like an incredible run I think actually probably up until about The Incredibles uh, and then they started to do cars and stuff like that and it kind of went lost some of the sort of uniqueness and the sort of incredible storytelling that they managed to come up with but yeah, no, for me, it's still uh, one of my favourites and one of my favourite seafaring films. Uh, so what have you got for us at number three? Yeah, I've gone for Captain Phillips. Um, I'm sure most people don't need an introduction to this movie that has become quite the, the meme in the past few years. But um, Captain Phillips is the, you know, it looks at the hijacking of the USS container ship by a crew of Somalian pirates. Uh, it's Tom Hanks and Paul Greengrass coming together. And I think it's one of the the most tensest movies I've I've kind of ever watched at the cinema I've you know this hijacking you know is just you know you're watching the whole time and you know I remember reading afterwards that the the SEAL team that go to save Captain Phillips and the crew were the same people that would end up going out to take out Osama Bin Laden so I highly recommend Captain Phillips and Zero Dark Thirty as a double bill if anyone's looking for it but I just think this you know examination of a hijacking at sea is just you know Paul Greengrass has you know, done, you know, his, his kind of past few years has been a bit of a mixed bag, you know, for, for every Captain Phillips is a bit of a green zone or the the new Jason Bourne movie, but his new kind of Netflix movie looks pretty interesting, so I'm kind of hopeful about that, but I think Tom Hanks in this as Captain Phillips is, is gives in a hell of a performance, and, you know, that, that kind of final stretch of the movie where he just breaks down from all the stress that he's gone through, and now that he's safe is just, you know, just fantastic. I, I really, you know, thought this film was just the absolute bee's knees when it came out yeah no that particular scene which you're talking about like the final five minutes where I mean he's had to be like a pillar of strength as he has had to show basically no weakness in order to make sure that his crew are okay and basically all survive this and when that is taken away from him and he's just left you know at the end it's all over and he's just suddenly like he doesn't know what to do and he breaks out. For me, that was one of the single greatest moments of acting I have ever seen in my life. And I was like, when he did that, I was like, that that's it. He's got the Oscar. And then he wasn't even nominated that year, which I thought was an absolute shame because for me, yeah, it was one of the finest moments of acting I've ever seen. And yeah, the whole film is, is incredible. And yeah, the, there's also another great film, uh, a hijacking, uh, a Danish film yes. called Hijacking, which is another. It's 
more of a sort of two-hander in that it's looks half of it looks at the crew and the ship but it also has the sort of the people behind the scenes sort of working get receiving the sort of demands and stuff and trying to work out whether or not they're going to pay it and stuff like this so it's another fantastic film which looks at hijacking but captain phillips was i did see have serious consideration about whether or not that was going to be on my list as well i thought it was just yeah superb. i think i think hi- yeah, hijacking is really good, but it feels very much a uh, procedural. You're just sort of watching yeah. the movie sort of from the boardroom, which is that is really interesting and exciting. It's a nice companion piece to actually being on there, but it kind of came out in and around the sort of time of, of um, Captain Phillips. And when you watch a movie like that, which is really tense, you know, the action's in your face, to kind of go from that to sort of watching people talking in a boardroom and having conference calls just doesn't pack the same punch you know for something similar it's very much the the ants and bug life and deep impact and uh, such like uh, kind of double bill of, of of our time i think yeah no absolutely so number three on my list is a film which features another battle of wills similar to uh the somali pirates and captain phillips uh but mine is crimson tide and Crimson Tide is a Tony Scott film uh, from the late uh, 80s, early 90s, and it features Gene Hackman as the commanding officer of a submarine and his new deputy, uh, played by Denzel Washington. And the premise is that they are have received a, a mission where they are to launch a attack on a Russian nuclear base if it looks like they're going to launch an attack on the US. Now they receive one transmission saying they go for launch and then they receive part of a second transmission where but then they are attacked and then they are unable to receive the full message. Now Gene Hackman wants to launch the missiles whereas Denzel Washington wants to wait and find out if that message was actually to rescind that order. And what we then get is a battle of wills between the two that uh, involves a sort of mutiny and also sort of physical and sort of playing off the two each other between these sort of two opposing forces and how their relationship and their sort of back and forth affects the entire ship and and the mission and it's all sort of done in this very claustrophobic environment of the submarine and it also features uh, uh, Hans Zimmer score which you can imagine is also very loud and bombastic and just increases the pressure uh, before things uh, reach a sort of final sort of climax and for me it's just you know one of those it's probably my favourite submarine film I know a lot of people might put sort of Das Boot some people might put uh, Black Sea but uh, I can't ever have that because uh, it features uh, Jude Law who is apparently doing a Doric Aberdeen accent, but he is. Yeah, I can hundred percent confirm this. You you can confirm that that's what he was doing, or that's what he was trying to do. Because I listened to it and I was like, I've never heard anyone speak like that up here. No, no. <laughs> I, I respect that he went down and sort of did instead of like a Glaswegian accent, he went kind of our sort of regional accent. And me and you have sort of grew up, and you still live in that neck of the woods. We do not sound like Jude Law in that movie. <laughs> no, but I, I think they basically went, oh. um it needs a Scottish accent, but what should we, should we do? Oh, they've got like oil and up that up in Aberdeen. Yeah, we'll go with that because yeah, everyone obviously goes on submarines instead of oil rigs up here. But yeah, but you know, oh, credit to him for you know it was definitely a Scottish accent that he did. Whether it was a Doric accent, I'm still not entirely sure. But uh, what are your thoughts on Crimson Tide and, and yeah. maybe the accents in that? <laughs> 
I haven't seen that movie in quite a long time. Um, I do remember it very fondly. I think it was that sort of movie that everyone's dad probably had on VHS or rented from Blockbuster <laughs> at the time. It, it, it was that I, you know, I haven't watched it probably maybe 15 years plus like so my memories of it are pretty sketchy apart from some of the the showdowns but i went i've seen kind of hands Zimmer a couple of times live in the past few years and whenever sort of crimson tide comes on like that is one of the best ones to hear with a live live score and an orchestra it's just like packs such a punch so you know i really need to to revisit it yeah no it's 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 one that you know i, I kind of catch occasionally on if it's on like TV, like late at night, you could just come across it. I'll end up. It's one of those films. It's always a sign of a good film that if you just come across it, and even if you've missed part of it, you end up watching it to the end. And that's that's something that I always do with with Crimson Tide. But we're reaching the uh, we're nearing the end here. So what have you got for us at number two? This shouldn't be a surprise to anyone that knows me, but I've gone with The Life Aquatic with Steve Zissou. Um, I think it's one of the absolute best movies of perhaps all time. It would certainly be in my top tier of movies. And I think it's by far the most original and beautiful movie based underwater for a variety of different reasons. I think the you know the the idea of someone going out to sea to get revenge is nothing new. You know, if people have ever heard of a small book called Moby Dick. But I think with this, like, you will never get a more beautiful moment underwater than you know. Bill Murray, Jeff Goldblum, Angelica Houston, this whole cast of characters underwater in this sort of you know underwater vehicle surrounded by stop motion uh, creatures with the C.O. Ross uh, Starofluor theme playing as it happens as we come face to face with the Jaguar shark is, is probably one of the most beautiful moments I've ever seen in a film and it still strikes me as one of the most emotional and it's it's a movie that's influenced me in many different ways and I, I was gutted. I, I missed this movie at the cinema, and I remember the first time I watched it on DVD, I, I'd just seen Royal Tenenbaums a few years earlier at the cinema when it came out, and I was desperate for a new Wes Anderson movie, and it kind of disappointed me a little bit, but it's a movie I've grown to love so much over the years, and um, I remembered last year I went to a Wes Anderson all-nighter, and then sadly fell asleep through most of the Life Aquatic, but only a few months later I was finally able to see the Life Aquatic fully on the big screen, and to see those moments and those visuals on a big screen were wonderful, and I think um, Steve Zissou is one of the, the great most memorable characters. Bill Murray is like the proper lead actor in a movie like this. It's just something else, and it's just filled with so many memorable moments, great quotes. Jeff Goldblum uh, joins the, the Wes Anderson universe. I just think it's wonderful, and it, it just st- strikes an emotional chord every single time. Yeah, this is a film which I've realised. I think I drafted up a list earlier in the week and then lost it and then had to make another list, and I'm pretty sure that I actually... I think I nearly had... I think I had a aquatic on my original list. I was, I'm just thinking about it going... Of course, yeah, no, I probably should have had that on my list. Because, yeah, it's it is a, it's one of my favourite Wes Anderson films. And it's got, yeah, like you say, so many great moments. I just love, like, the Jeff Goldblum line. Is, it, is that my coffee machine? <laughs> yeah. And the the score, well, not the score, but the song choice, which is basically um, Sue George from City yeah. of God. He basically does, it's all David Bowie covers. And uh, they're all fantastic. And... I have a theory about the end. We can, I guess we can discuss it now. Um, so there's this whole thing that he's basically filming another sort of TV show about this whole sort of story where he re- reconnected with his son and going after the Jaguar shark, which killed his partner. Now, I mean, this film's 
was it 14 years old or something? So I think we can talk about spoilers, okay. Mm-hmm. But um, Owen Wilson's character dies sort of towards the end. But I'm pretty sure that at the end of the film, when they all return to the ship, he is on the ship. And I think that that whole death sort of sequence was created by Steve Zizou for the show to create more impact. Am I mad? or Was I imagining that? Or is this a theory which other people have? I've never heard that theory before, so that's always a good sign. Or maybe a bad sign, whichever way you want to take it. But like, I've never heard that theory. It's, it's definitely an interesting one. I'm, I don't think it I personally don't feel that was maybe kind of what was going on. I just, you know, I think they had full intention of going down there and, and killing the jaguar shark. But I think that the events and the death of Ned just kind of kind of brought a somber moment to it. And I, I yeah, I I could certainly see the, the, the working behind that sort of theory. But no, I, I, I'm not going to subscribe to that one. But it's certainly going to colour how I watch the next one, I think. Well, I'm gonna go. I'm gonna have to now watch this back and find that moment and take a screen grab or something and show you it to try and figure out this. Because I'm sure I, I don't know if I've invented it in my head, but I was sure that's what it was. But I guess I, that's uh, we can. If if you're listening to this podcast and you have any theories on the ending of Life Aquatic, please let us know uh, who is right and who is wrong. Or if you have another theory about what was going on, I'm sure we'd love to to hear it. So, but yeah, no, Life Aquatic is an excellent choice at number two. And my number two is the best. I think that was my number one. Was that your number one? E- oh wait, no, no. Oh my god, I've spoiled it. I've accidentally <laughs> closed. I that is my number one, and I have. Uh, oh my word, I actually do have a number two, and for some reason I closed that tab. Uh, yeah, so Life Aquatic is my number one, but I will. Uh, you will now get the prequel in the next one. Oh my dearie me. Well. Well, I guess we'll see. Uh, is your number two Jaws by any chance? No, it's not. It's no. not. So you didn't have Jaws in your top five. Okay. No. Jaws was is my number two. And I was going back and forth on this, given that Jaws is the most iconic, the most famous shark movie ever made. Is it too obvious a choice to put in the top five? But then I thought, you know what? It's a great film anyway. You look at it. Of course, I'm going to put it in my top five. So yeah, my number two is Steven Spielberg's Jaws which I was lucky enough to see uh, recently at the Edinburgh Film Festival with a live orchestra score. It was only at that moment, which I think we've talked about this before, that I realised that there's actually surprisingly little music in Jaws. It's basically the main theme played over and over again whenever the shark arrives, but it is a great theme. Uh, But it's just one of those movies that it sort of brings me back to my childhood and sort of... It's just... Great film, very well told. It's you know they say it's the original summer blockbuster. It's just great storytelling. I like, you know, there's great lines in it. Like where this guy says, you know, how can you live on an island? You know, when you hate the water, and he says it's only an island if you look at it from the water. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's that kind of thing. And the three great performances from Roy Scheider, Richard Dreyfus, and you know, for me, uh, Robert Shaw's Quint steals the whole show from that. He's got one of the best character introductions of all time, sort of scratching the nails down the chalkboard. And, you know, you don't know what I do. You know, for 10 grand, you get the head, the tail, the whole damn thing. And, you know, it's you've got each character has got a storyline that they're working through and it all sort of comes to a head at the end. But, I mean, that whole scene on the Orca where you get the Indianapolis speech and, you know, it's just 
masterful storytelling, very well. I mean, you only spend less than two hours with these characters, but you feel like you've known them forever. And, you know, it's a film which has succeeded despite of its, you know, problems. You know, there's a documentary has been made about, you know, just how bad this rubber shark uh, was and they basically it was going to be featured a lot more but then because it wasn't working they basically went with the style in which they've got and which it's hardly ever seen and the music becomes the shark instead and it just works perfectly i mean everyone knows about jaws they don't need me to go on about you know what it's about and how brilliant it is but yeah that's it my number two is jaws well at least you ranked it in the correct place <laughs> exactly. So, um, what would your number two <laughs> be? <laughs> yeah, my number two was a, a movie that should have been the biggest franchise in the world, and that's Master and Commander: Ooh. The Far Side of the World. Well, it's maybe a good thing that you missed it because I have that at my number one. My number one film is your number two, and that is, of course, Master and Commander: The Far Side of the World. And I agree with you one hundred percent. This film absolutely 100% deserved a sequel and it was billed you know as being master commander the far side of the world as in you know it should have it was based on uh uh one of the books and i think it was about 18 different books about captain jack mm-hmm. Aubrey and his various missions on the sea and yeah i just don't know why now 15 years on we haven't had another one what do you like about master and commander so much I just always remember that first time I went to see it and it was it's the type of movie that when you're younger you hear that these are the movies that perhaps your grandfather watched you know the the big seafaring movies that you know kind of end up sort of playing randomly on film four and like Saturday afternoons or Tuesday afternoons I remember just going to the cinema and just being really so impressed with this like you know things like Pirates of the Caribbean were to come but something like this felt like it was a real snapshot into a time of uh, like a, a piece of history that you know it was really kind of captured on on modern film it felt so big in scope and scale you know the score was wonderful the performances were big and bold it was just like you know it really was sort of like a you know a perfect adventure movie really in a way and you know we kind of look at the movies that kind of now would class as adventure movies you know they're they're so big you know there's cgi ships and so on whereas this felt like everything felt real you know the the pain people felt you know the the surgeries that would have to happen it it wasn't a romantic film in any sort of respect you know the, the their ideals and beliefs were but the reality of working on this ship was was far from it and i think it was a fantastic movie i think you know uh, russell crowe was he, he is made for a movie like this and i just think um yeah i really enjoyed it so much why, why did it kind of become your number one i mean for a lot of the sort of same reasons it came out a couple of years after the original pirates of the caribbean film and it's a film which skirted around the number sort of five position for me which you know i thought the first one was really enjoyable but this was in a whole nother level this was you felt like you were on the ship and it everything was very like you say very authentic very real this was like what it, life was like if you were living on the seven seas and involved in these sort of battles uh with sort of the French Armada and also the sort of more quieter moments with the, uh, with sort of Paul Bettany's uh, doctor who sort of was interested in the wildlife on the Galapagos and stuff like this. So, I mean, you basically spend a lot of time. It's, it's got 
subplots and it's got this you know the revenge plot where captain jack aubrey is looking to get this mysterious french ship that attacked them and he wants to try and track them down but also it's it's more just about what life is like on these boats and the direction is fantastic i think the the acting is superb i mean yeah russell crowe is for me almost maybe never been better than captain jack aubrey and you know the the partnership he's got with Paul Bettany's in it is fantastic and you know people could say you know it's a man's a man man's fault because you know there are no from what I can remember there's no female characters in this whatsoever I think there might have been no. like a Polynesian girl sort of in a boat sort of smiling at them as they sort of do trades and stuff like this but yeah it's just life at sea and it's just incredible and it's a film which you know Russell Crowe Paul Bettany if you happen to be listening to this please please make a sequel you know, I know they're talking at the moment about a sequel to The Nice Guys, another Russell Crowe film, which I'd be happy to watch a sequel of. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I think we really need uh, another Master and Commander film. And, you know, for me, it's got one of the best bad jokes in the history of cinema. And it's one which, you know, is so bad, but I always love it. And it's the, the bit where the uh, Captain Jack is asking uh, Paul Bettany's character about which... Uh, uh, bug is he thinks is uh, larger or smaller and basically it's about the lesser of two weevils and for some reason it cracks <laughs> me up every time I hear it yeah. uh, but yeah, it's one of those films which is you know it harks back to a, yeah like a different time sort of it feels like you know the sort of like the films they would make in the 50s and stuff like this old school sort of Hollywood and you know it's a film that you know seems to have been overlooked and although you know it's a very underrated film and not many people have seen it but it it did get a lot of credit at the time. It was nominated for several Oscars. It was nominated for Best Picture and stuff like this, but just didn't make the the impact that uh, I think it, it deserves. And I think if anyone was to watch it now, it's it's one of those films that if people say, you know, what's one film that you could recommend that people maybe haven't seen before? I would absolutely recommend Master and Commander 100%, and that's why it's at my number one. And it, bur- it gave birth to my, one of my favourite South Park episodes where they, uh, have you, I don't know if you've ever seen it, where it's the Russell Crowe fighting around the world, <laughs> where Russell Crowe is, uh, yeah, Tugger of the Boat, and he's sitting there in a captain's outfit just like fighting around the world, and yeah, that's the closest I think we'll ever get to a Master and Commander sequel, is uh, his Russell Crowe fighting around the world in his boat. That's sad, but uh, yeah, Hollywood, please, please commission a Master and Commander sequel, um, we can start the groundswell of support and we'll see. I, I think Russell Crowe would be up for it. I think he could still play it. You know, Paul Bettany could still do it. So, yeah, let's let's get back on the seven seas again. Come on, let's do it. Sounds good to me. Well, I think we're, we'll definitely get that campaign up and running. Absolutely. But uh, that's us doing our top five and in the correct order. Uh, so, yeah, so my number one was Master and Commander and your number one was Life Aquatic. So those are two huge recommendations for the week along with uh, First Reformed if you can catch it and also The Meg if you're up for a bit of stupid sort of Friday night violence so yeah so we'll be back next week on the filibuster but have you got any more interviews lined up for the Fringe Festival that people might be able to catch up on I will be we'll be back on uh, Monday, so we you know we had a bit of a bumper one obviously this Monday, and it'll be the same again on Wednesday on uh, this coming Monday. So um, I'll have Rick Carranza; he'll be coming back to talk about his Star Trek show. I, I've got Ari Schaefer coming on; he's hot off his Netflix original comedy show. He's going to be coming on. Um, I'm really excited. Sort of during this. Uh, 
episode recording, uh, it's been confirmed that Latita Doesh, uh, the French actress, um, will be coming on this week as well. You know, people might recognise her from Junoui Fimi. Uh, she's been described as France's own Greta Gerwig. She's performing here at the festival um, in a play and she'll be coming to talk with me. So I will be off to meet her tomorrow uh, on Thursday actually and then we've kind of got maybe one or other two just to sort out so we'll have a bumper one on Monday and then it'll be back to me in Dallas on the the third on the Wednesday fantastic so yep yeah, keep uh, tuned to the nerd party for all these filibuster updates but also check out other shows such as nerd nutshell missing frames aggressive negotiations and say alpha three but uh, until next time I guess uh, all we can say is to cap it off in the same way that Chief Brody would at the end, which is a uh, smile, you son of a bitch. We'll catch <laughs> you next time. <laughs> Bye. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. <gasps> no, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.